Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 this evening. Again, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Oh, Father, as we think about the revelation that you've given to us in the scriptures, we are struck by the fact that you are a God who speaks You are a God who has spoken all things into existence, and you are the God who has spoken to us. Help us to see the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the culmination of everything that you have revealed to man. And may it be that we would see his glory and that we would render our hearts obedient to him, that we would not seek to justify ourselves, to twist the scriptures, but that we would simply ask what our Lord requires and that we would simply do those things. Lord, we do ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, in any kind of speaking situation, both the introduction and the conclusion are vitally important. It's, it's uh, particularly the conclusion. The last thing that's, that's being said in a given speech or a talk is the last chance that a speaker has to really drill home the message that he is, is uh, giving and trying to uh, really put before the people he's speaking to the main reasons, the most important things that he wants to say. Uh, this, is, this is the thing that's the most climactic uh, in, in the speech. We have a similar kind of thing that happens with arguments. You think about the, the very last argument that's given. You think about um, when two people are debating, uh, if one is able to give a final decisive word that shuts the mouth of his opponent, that's, that's the, the, the argument that clinches the deal. It's the one that is uh, most climatic and emphatic and is, in fact, the most significant. You think of the example of the Lord Jesus Christ when the Pharisees are questioning him, they're challenging him, and then he asks them a question. He says, uh, who is the Christ? Is he David's son? And they say, yes, he's David's son. And he says, well, if he's David's son, how then does David call him Lord? And then he quotes from Psalm 110. And what Jesus does there is that last word that he gives to them shuts their mouths or are unwilling to bring him any other questions. And that last thing that he says then hangs in the air. It's the thing that sticks with everyone. Who is this person? If he's David's son, he must be uh, not only David's son, but also David's Lord. Now, that's the significance of conclusions and introductions in general. And it's important for us to think about this because 
Uh, though the Bible is filled with all kinds of interactions with people, all kinds of speeches that are made, we have to recognize that the Bible itself is one book. It's written by many people over lots of, of time, but yet it is still one book that has one principal author, and that, that author is God. And so as we think about the importance of conclusions, it's, it's right for us to ask this question. What is the conclusion of the Bible? What is its summation? If you were to say, you know, there's all kinds of things that God says in the scriptures. There's all kinds of, of topics that are addressed. Truly, we could say the scriptures are sufficient for us in faith and life. It is sufficient for every area of our life. So it touches on a number of different things. And yet, we need to understand what the conclusion is. What's the main summary? If you were to boil down the message of the scriptures to one word, what would it be? And that, that brothers and sisters, is the question and the answer that the author to the Hebrews gives in the very opening of this book. The answer is the climax of everything that God wants to say, he has said in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There may have been other things that God said at various points, but the climax and summation of the whole is found in a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the grand conclusion and summing up of God's revelation. Now, that's the point of verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. And it may be difficult to think through what is the, the singular point found in verses 1 through 4 of the beginning of the book of Hebrews. The structure can be very difficult to follow. The reason for this is because uh, there are long sentences with, with lots of different um, digressions and, and, uh, and modifications uh, uh, attributing to the Lord Jesus Christ, this or that thing, lots of different descriptions. Um, and yet... And, and in this way, it's very much like the Apostle Paul and his sentences. You know, sometimes Paul will have sentences that go on for 10 verses. This is something that's similar that's happening here. It's a very complex sentence that's being given. And it's rhetorically very beautiful, but it can make it very difficult to think through what is the actual point that's being said in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Now, you remember that the book of Hebrews is meant to be a, something of a sermon. It's really essentially a written sermon. We, we, we looked at that last week with uh, chapter 13, verses 22, where the author describes as a word of exhortation. So it's a word of exhortation, and we saw that was uh, a way to describe sermons in general in the ancient world. And often, through, too, in the book of Hebrews, the author will speak of, of not writing to, the, to his audience, but speaking to them. So he'll speak to them various things. And so the, the, the language is very beautiful, and it's very rhetorically elegant. Um, but again, it can be difficult to think through what the message is of verses 1 through 4. But if you were to simplify and remove all the, 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 uh, the clauses that attribute something to the Son or describe further this or that thing, if you were to simplify the sentence of verse 1, it would be something like this. God spoke in the past through the prophets. Now he's spoken through Christ. And everything else in the passage in one way or another modifies that basic idea. There are other things that are meant to be said, but everything is contributing to this great conclusion. That's the main thing that, that the author of the Hebrews begins with. There's other things that God has said. He's spoken in many ways, in various times, and in many parts, as we'll see, through all these different means, through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. And that is the thing that you are to keep in mind as we begin the book of Hebrews. Now, all of the other things that are said in this passage in verses 1 to 4 are meant to highlight the greatness of the Son through whom he spoke. So the idea then is there's, there's then two discernible main elements to this passage. The first is God has spoken in his Son definitively in a way that's different from, from the past. 
and the son in whom he has spoken is incomprehensibly great and glorious. That is the main thing that the author wants you to know. God has spoken through his son and his son is glorious. Now, there is quite a lot to unpack in verses 1 to 4 of the book of Hebrews. So we're actually only going to get to the beginning of verse 2 this evening. And then we'll look at uh, the second part of verse 2 all the way to verse 4 next week. So in in terms of the main idea of verses 1 to 4, it's God has spoken through his son and his son is glorious. We're really only going to look at the first part of that this evening. The fact that God has spoken through his son rather than speaking through the prophets as he did in times past. Now, the significance then of this first part is, is highlighted by the author when he contrasts the way in which God spoke formerly with the way that he has spoken now in these last days. The point is, uh, is not just to say that God has spoken now through his son, but he has spoken now in his son in a way that's quite different from the way in which God spoke in the past. So there are a number of, of points in verses 1 and 2, where the author is contrasting two different things. He'll, he'll, he's contrasting the way in which God used to speak through the prophets and the way in which God speaks now through his Son. Now, if this is the case, then one of the first things that we need to understand is what is the nature, what, what is the author saying the nature of the speech was that God gave in times past? Because that will help us to conclude what he is trying to say, the nature of the speeches that we find in the Son. So however God spoke in the past, there are some things that are the same in Christ. It's both the Word of God, for instance. And yet there is something that the author is highlighting. He's saying, you know, it used to happen this way. And this was subpar. This was, this was not the culmination. There was something more to be desired. As great as it was, it was sufficient for the people at the time. And yet it wasn't complete. And that, and that incompleteness is now filled up by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the point. The way that God speaks now is not like the way that, that he spoke through the, through the prophets in some ways. And the thing that the author points to is two things. And it's translated in our translation as at various times and in various ways. That's the nature of the way that God used to speak that's being contrasted with the way that he is speaking now in his son the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, this is actually highly emphatic too. Uh, In the original, these are the first two words of the book. Uh, So it's it's not God who at various times, it's at various times and in various ways. Uh, So it's the very first thing that's said. It's put all the way up in the front of the sentence for uh, emphasis. And there is something of a difficulty in translating these two words at various times and in various ways. Uh, Probably the closest English translation that I found was uh, the, the NASB, which says in many portions and in many ways. And that is actually a footnote for, for the, the version that we're reading as well, the, the New King James Version. Um, most of the translations have something like at many times. The word here, though, really has nothing to do with time. It is related to time by way of implication, but the word is actually not about God speaking at many times. The word has to do with speaking in many parts. It's a many-parted speech. This is to say it's fragmented in its character. There was never a complete revelation that was given. And therefore, there, there of course, had to be more that would have to come. God, God gave the revelation through the prophets piecemeal. He didn't give them the whole thing at once. So it came not as a whole, but in many parts. 
And of course, if it comes in many parts, it of course has to come in many times as well. So it's, it's true by way of implication. But the word, it means many parts. And then the second thing, the second thing that's said is that it comes in many ways. In many ways. So it came in a fragmentary character, but it also comes in many ways. That is to say, it comes through uh, prophets by way of dreams and visions. Uh, and, and that dreams and visions of, of various kinds. It comes by way of theophanies, where God would appear to a prophet. He would appear to someone and make known his will in that way. It comes in God's mighty acts. God's mighty acts in the Old Testament would be revelations of his character and what he is going to do. It, come, it came in types and shadows. It came in all of the ceremonies of the Old Testament. It came in, in the temple and all the sacrifices. All of these were the very many ways in which God manifested his revelation to the people of God. So those are the two things that the author is highlighting. It comes in many parts. It doesn't come all at once. It's fragmented in its character, and it comes in very many ways. And the point, the point in drawing attention to this nature of the way in which God spoke in times past is to highlight that when the sun comes, these things are no longer true of the revelation of God. And so the, the nature is the thing that's the, the most important thing to grasp. It is not going to be fragmented anymore. And it's not going to come in many different ways. In these last days, there is only one method of communication. And that is through the, through, through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not going to come in many parts anymore. It is wholly complete in Christ. Such that we would not expect uh, more parts to be added after it. Because with Christ, it is done. It is God's final submission and conclusion into everything that he wanted to say to us. The Lord Jesus Christ is the culmination of everything that God has wanted to say. There's no longer any need for him to communicate in other ways. All other ways were inferior to this one way. There's no longer need for God to give any other parts. Everything has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice then too, another comparison is a comparison between the nature of those who give the speech. On the one hand, in the past, God spoke through the prophets. God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in a son, in his son. The idea there is um, not so much focusing on, uh, on it, the, the main focus with regard to son is that there is a quality of the person who is giving the revelation. He is not a prophet merely, but he is a prophet who is in fact a son. And what this means then is that none of the other prophets ever had the title of sonship in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ has it. That's the point that's being made. Uh, and this means not even Moses. So for instance, the author will, will, uh, will compare the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to Moses in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And he admits readily, Moses is the greatest in God's house. There's nobody like Moses. Quotes from Numbers chapter 12. Moses is faithful in all my house. He speaks to me face to face. Other prophets I deal with in dreams and visions, but Moses is the highest within the house. But he says, Moses may be the highest within the house, but Christ is over the house as a son. Moses is the most faithful in the house, but he's still a servant and he's in the house. Christ is the son over the house who is its builder. And therefore, he is a, of worth more glory and honor than Moses as the maker of a house is worthy of more honor than the house itself. Moses is in the house as a servant. Christ is over the house as a son. And as the son, he is the perfect revelation of the father. The one who, 
as, as the Apostle John says, was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity, and yet who became man, who uh, became the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that he might, as the one true God, reveal the Father to us, being the perfect revelation of the Father, because it is really who he is by his very nature, being the exact impress of his character and of his being. This is the way in which God has spoken, no longer by a prophet, but rather by the Son, even the eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the last contrast that is made is the timing of the, of the prophecy versus the revelation in the Son. You'll notice that it said uh, that God in times past, he spoke by the fathers, the prophets, spoke to the fathers, the prophets. But then that is contrasted with him speaking in these last days by the Son. So there are two different timings that are going on. There is the past, the normal way of God revealing himself to people. And then there is these last days whereby God spoke to us in the Son. The point of drawing out uh, this description of last days, not that, that he's speaking now through the Son, but particularly that speaking in the Son means the last days have come. The point is to say that everything that the prophets have said about the expectation of a salvation that would come at the end of days through the Messiah, that those things have now come. The, the full expectation of the prophets has in fact been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a sense in which we're still waiting for uh, the, the final culmination of the last days, so to speak, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven. The prophets in the Old Testament didn't make that distinction very clearly. The idea was when the Messiah comes, then the end has come. And in the New Testament, this is the reason why we get in the New Testament the theology of the already and the not yet. Christ has come, and because he has come, the end has come. We are living even now in the last days. We are living in the culmination of God's redemptive history. And this, this, these last days have been finally inaugurated. The new creation has been inaugurated through the Lord Jesus Christ. That, the, the point of that is to heighten the significance of what it means that Christ has in fact come. His coming marks the culmination of everything in redemptive history. And so you think of, uh, for instance, uh, in Genesis chapter 49, the prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ coming from the tribe of Judah and having a scepter and having the obedience of the nations. That comes in the context of a, of a description of uh, Joseph, of Jacob prophesying about what will happen in the last days. You think of uh, Numbers 24 as well, Balaam's prophecy, particularly the last one regarding uh, a, a savior who would come, particularly a king. And there the description is what will come in the last days. Deuteronomy chapter 4 makes use of the same language as we saw as we were going through that book. Uh, the return from exiles to happen in the last days. Micah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 2, in the last days Zion will be lifted up as the highest of the mountains. All the nations will gather to it. You think of Hosea chapter 3, uh, where in the last days there would be a king, David, who would uh, bring the people back, who would save them definitively, definitively from all of their enemies, who would merge the north, the northern kingdom in the south. He would heal all wounds and divisions. You think of Daniel chapter 2, the promise that in the last days there would be a kingdom that would be established that would crush all of the other kingdoms and it would last forever. The point of saying in these last days, God has spoken by a son is to say that this son has brought in these times which the prophets were speaking of. He is the culmination of everything that God has wanted to say. Everything in him is complete. 
It's not fragmentary. And he is the one way in which God speaks now. He doesn't speak through those other ways. Now, this is quite important for us today to consider. Uh, the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, uh, is quite uh, strong in terms of its, its zeal and the number of people that, that, that hold to it. But this passage makes very clear that with the definitive message of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the revelation that has a particular character in terms of the way in which God does reveal himself, this means there can be no more continuing revelation that's given, contrary to everything that the Pentecostals would say. Uh, if, if it were true that there were continuing revelations, then the logic would be something like this. In the past, God spoke in various ways through the prophets. Then he spoke in his son before going back to using the prophets in various ways and in various parts. That would undermine severely the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is the final word from God. And it inherently means there is something incomplete about the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that's the point that the author is trying to make. It came in many parts because it was incomplete. Once it's complete, then you can't add to it. If you add to it, then it's no longer complete. If the speaking in the Son is the final and complete revelation, then there can be no other revelation that's given. And in, in very many ways, this is a similar error to what the Catholics make uh, in other areas of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think of the, the, the threefold office of the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand Christ to be prophet, priest, and king. Why is it that we have no other sacrifice? Because Christ is the final sacrifice. It's something that's going to be hammered home over and over again in the book of Hebrews. There is no other sacrifice because the Lord Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. If, he's, if there are other sacrifices, then it implies that he is not the perfect and final sacrifice because there are others that have come afterwards. This is the reason why it's such a, a, a terrible mistake and error uh, of the, the Roman Catholic Church to teach that there are, in fact, more sacrifices. You think of, of the, the sacrifice of the Mass, for instance, where they actually will say that the, that the sacrifice of the Mass makes propitiation for sins. If, if the sacrifice of the Mass makes propitiation for sins, then Christ is not the final and complete sacrifice. You think of the same thing with regard to kingship. So we, have, we acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, in the Old Testament, there were kings that would come and they would die. David comes, becomes king, and then Solomon... Rehoboam, and it goes on and on and on. And then there are successions of other people that come. There are even local rulers in Judah for a long time until you get to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes. He is the great king. He dies. He's raised from the dead. And then he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And from there, he rules over all the nations. Therefore, we do not look for any other king. He is the only head of the church. And this is why it's such a great error for the Catholic Church to say, that the Pope is the head of the, of the church. When they say the Pope is the head of the Roman Catholic Church, it becomes a problem. There you're going back to a system where there is succession. The Popes come, they die, then another one succeeds them. It's going back to an old method, and it undermines the finality and the glory of Christ being the one true great king. Well, with regard to prophecy, the charismatic movement is guilty of the exact same thing, just applying it to the, the office of, of prophet rather than of king or priest. If the Lord Jesus Christ is not the final prophet such that we can expect God to use these old means, it would be the same, it's the exact same error. You are going back to an inferior method of prophecy that has been done away with because Christ is the culmination of everything that God wants 
to say to us. Christ is the culmination and therefore we do not look for others. Just as the animal sacrifices are inferior, just as the Davidic line before the coming of Christ is inferior to Christ himself, so too seeking God's revelation by dreams and visions is immensely inferior to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the revelation in his person of the Father. And to go back to those other methods is not a sign of faith, but actually of lack of faith in the true final significance of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the reason why it's important to hold to this. This is the reason why the author to the Hebrews is, is so emphatically saying this. He, Christ is the final revelation from the Father. God does not speak to us in the ways that he did in the past through the prophets. Now, you, you may be wondering, well, what does this mean then for New Testament prophets? Are there not uh, prophets in the New Testament that even come after the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is yes, there were prophets that came, prophets and apostles in the generation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the purpose of these prophets and apostles is merely to record what the Lord Jesus Christ did as the final salvation, the, the, the final revelation of God. They come and they record those things. And until the word of the New Testament is complete, which is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, until that's complete, there would be some need for prophets to come and communicate the word of God. But once the church has the New Testament, once it has the final complete revelation centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, at that point, there is no need for anything else. And so you had the apostles, they, they had the gift of prophecy. They could give the gift of prophecy by the laying on of hands. Once the apostles die, there is no provision for that gift to continue. Nobody else could give that, that gift by the laying on of hands and God did not see fit to have it continue. The reason is because once God speaks definitively in his son, there is no need for any other kind of supernatural revelation. All of it has been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean practically? What does it mean practically? If we were to just say, you know, um, okay, we've, we've got the doctrinal point. We, we do not want to, to fall into the charismatic or the Pentecostal movement. We're not going to look for a continuing revelation. Why is it significant that we hold to the Lord Jesus Christ being the culmination of everything that God's wanted to say? The answer is, it heightens your obligation to pay attention to the word of God and to obey it. It heightens your obligation to obey the word of God. You think of, uh, of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the very first paragraph, where there's actually an allusion to this very passage. It says this, Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners, clearly alluding back to, to uh, Hebrews 1.1. It pleased the Lord in, at sundry times in, in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing. So there's God spoke at various times in various ways, but now he's committed to writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. Now notice the last thing that's said in this paragraph. It makes the Holy Scriptures most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. The thing that makes the word of God most necessary, it's always necessary, in, in the Old Testament times, it was, it was still necessary. And yet it is now most necessary because there is now no other way to get the word of God. There is no other way to receive any kind of supernatural revelation. The only way is found 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, brothers and sisters, then you have an even higher obligation to cling to the Word of God. You've got nowhere else to go to find the will of God. You must go to the Scriptures and to the Scriptures alone. And even your obligation is heightened even beyond that because Christ is the complete revelation of God. He is the end of it. And so you could say, you know, well, the revelation being incomplete, the full glory of it has not yet been manifest. It's still coming. But when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, now all of a sudden you have the glory of God revealed in his eternal son who becomes flesh to reveal the father to you. It would be one thing for you to turn away from the word of God in those former times when there, were, when there was this communication through the prophets and it would be a great sin to do so. But think brothers and sisters of how much greater a sin it is if you were to turn away from the word of God, if you say, I will not obey this word of God. When the revelation of this word is, Christ, is, is the son of God himself, is the eternally begotten son of the father, is the Lord Jesus Christ in his very person as he has manifested the Father to us. If it is a bad thing to turn away from the one, it is a much worse thing to turn away from the other. The point is, if this is the way that God has spoken in these last days, you must obey the word of God. You absolutely must obey the word of God. Now, there are many ways in which Christ is disobeyed today, in which the word of God is not heeded, in which people look at the Bible and they'll say, you know, I don't want anything to do with that. Uh, one is just by outrightly rejecting the word of God. Very common today, but of course, not so much in the church. At least it ought not to be uh, so common in the church. Even, even in the liberal churches, this is not common. Uh, the idea of outrightly rejecting the word of God, it's not typically the way that it happens. The way that it happens rather is by subtly twisting the word of God such that you are unwilling to submit to what it actually says and then pretend to be obeying the word of God when in your heart you really know that you're not. And this is the way that is very, very common in the church and is very, very common even in our own circles. Basically, it is an extended, it is, it is an extension of what the devil said to Eve in tempting her to sin. In tempting her to sin. The question is not, are you really going to listen to God at all? The question is, did God really say that you have to do this? Did he really say it? And this is the thing that causes people to say, well, you know, well, maybe he didn't really say it. Maybe, maybe if I just look at this verse this way and I look at this verse this way, I can really say that God is not requiring of me this very thing. And this is the most common way in which people try to justify themselves. There is a subtle twisting of the scriptures. And if you were to ask, you know, why would people do that? Why is it that the scriptures are twisted? The, the answer is because they do not want to obey the word of God as it has been given. They do not want to obey the word of God as it has been given. So when the devil whispers and says, did God really say that? They have it ready. Well, I've looked at this and that commentary. I've looked at this or that verse. When you pair it with this verse, you can see that the Bible doesn't actually say this or that thing. You could say, you know, the Bible... Does the Bible really say that I need to tithe? Does it really say that I need to be in church? Does it really say that I need to keep the Sabbath holy? Does it really say that I need to care for my aging parents? Does it really say that I need to read my Bible? Does it really say that I need to do family worship? Does it really say that I need to prioritize worship? Does it really say that I need to go out of my way to help people who are in need? Does it 
Does it really say that I must give up ambitions within my career for the sake of my family? Does it really say that I need to dress modestly? Does it really say that I need to only move to an area where there is a good church? The temptation is to say, I I want to do this thing, and I'm going to question whether or not the Bible actually teaches that I must do this very thing. And so if you think one good way to test to see if if you have done this, you think of uh, times in which you've heard the preaching of the word, where there has been some duty that's been put forward from the scriptures. And rather than it cutting you to the heart and causing you to change what you do, rather you start to say, well, I think the pastor is getting it wrong here. I, I think that this is actually not what it says. And then all the way home, as you're thinking about what's been said, you're trying very hard to think of all the reasons why the pastor is wrong about this or that thing. Now, I very well could be wrong. I could be wrong about this or that thing. But brothers and sisters, very often, very often, this is the heart of the person that is trying to justify himself by trying to throw off the implications of the word of God. It is not receiving the word of God as it really is, as the complete and final revelation of God. It is the heart that hopes on the last day that it will be able to say before, the, before God when he asks you why you did this thing that is clearly contrary to the Bible. You hope to be able to say, well, I really sincerely thought that your word did not say that. And you'll give all your reasons. But brothers and sisters, in the end, what will happen on the last day? The judgment will include your very thoughts. And God will be able to see that really what was going on is you were subtly trying to avoid the implications of what the word of God in fact said. And it reveals a heart that is not submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ, that does not respect that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, that he has spoken to us in his son in these last days. And brothers and sisters, the same is true with doctrines. It's not just duties, but doctrines. Why is it the case that the orthodox doctrines of the Christian faith are always under attack? It's not just because there's some, you know, um, this, this love of, of controversy that people have or debates to, to, to win intellectual points for this or that doctrine. The answer is because there's always an attempt to water down the truth of what the scriptures say in order to justify man, in order to get, account some glory to man in some way, to, to, uh, to give man some kind of credit for something in this life that God claims for himself, to, to water down how bad your sin really is. That's the reason why all doctrinal controversies happen. There is on the one side, those who are trying to maintain the scriptures and give glory to God, regardless of what it does to man. And there are others that are zealously trying to defend the honor of man. And they will say, you know, God doesn't really say my sin is that bad. God doesn't really say that it's just God that saves. I can find this or that verse that shows that it is actually me who gets to contribute something to this salvation and that I have the power to do it. It is is ultimately a heart that is not willing to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does this relate to the rest of the passage? Remember, the point of the passage is really twofold. We've looked only this evening at the contrast between the way God did speak and the way God does speak or did speak in those last days through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, everything else that's said in verses 1 to 4, is meant to teach you how great this son is in whom God has spoken. The idea is God spoke like that in the past 
in these last days, he has climatically spoken in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just so you know, this son is incomprehensibly great and glorious in every way. In every way, he is incomprehensibly great and glorious. He is, as the author will say, the heir of all things, the one who created everything, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact impress of his being, who made atonement for sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, the one who is far superior to all angels. And so, brothers and sisters, if you, th you think about it, when you think about what is your obligation before God, it is not to justify yourself. It is simply to recognize that the Bible contains the word of this Christ and that the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ is this very revelation. And the requirement on your life is simply to receive that word, to repent when there's anything in your life that is contrary to this word and to obey it, asking God for help by his spirit. You remember what, what as, the, as, Peter describes, as Peter describes it on the Mount of Transfiguration, the majestic voice born from heaven testifying of the Son, when the Father spoke in the presence of the disciples and said, this is my beloved Son. And you remember the next thing he said, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. This is my beloved Son, listen to him. He is the definitive revelation of God, the full culmination of everything that God intended to say to man. Remember, this is the warning that God gave through Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, he said that he would raise up a prophet like Moses from among the brothers. And he says, if any person does not listen to that prophet, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself will require it of him. This is the great culmination. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great culmination. You think of even of uh, Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah 2, where Zion is lifted up as the highest of all the mountains. And what it says is, all the nations will come and they'll say, and they'll say, come, let us go up to Jerusalem because out of Jerusalem is going the law. The idea is the, the teaching, the teaching of God. But brothers and sisters, how is that fulfilled? What is the teaching that's gone forth from Zion? The teaching is found in a person. The teaching is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he is the one to whom you are to listen as the final revelation of God. May it be that God would grant you the grace to see his glory, as we will look at in more detail next week, that he, that he, would, you would, grant, he would grant you the grace to see his glory and that in seeing his glory, you would willingly submit your lives to his will. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing it is that we have this great revelation that we can say, uh, that, that we can receive the words that Jesus has said that if anyone has seen Christ, he has seen the Father. Lord, what a wonderful thing to think on. Uh, may it be that you would grant us the grace to always hold fast to the truth of this text, that we would not seek for supernatural revelation in any other way, that we would recognize that Christ is the highest and the culmination of all revelation, and, uh, and that we would simply obey him in every area of our lives, that we would not seek to justify ourselves and our actions against the word of God, but that we would rather repent and seek to conform our lives to the word as it has been given. For Lord, we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.